Have a seat, church. Have a seat. Man, praise the Lord for such a beautiful day, um, just being able to gather. Man, amen, amen, yeah, amen. I know sometimes it's confusing when I say praise the Lord. Is it like, is he telling us to clap, or is he just saying praise the Lord? Um, man, tomorrow might be one of the most beautiful 4th of Julys we've ever had. I, I don't know, man. It's supposed to be like 90, 90 on the 4th of July. Like that's, if you're out of town and you're visiting Fresno for some reason, that's, that's extremely good um, weather for the 4th of July. All right, the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 17 would really encourage you to follow along in your own Bible, or if you don't have one, there's one on the seats here. It's going to be on the screens, but I, I think there's, um, there's a benefit with just having it there and being able to reference it, because we're going to be parking it here in uh, Jeremiah 17 for a bit. And uh, that means we're going to take a, a little break from our study through Romans. Um, it's been good so far. Uh, it's been hard, because the first three chapters of Romans, um, there's not a lot of good news. It's not a very um, encouraging or comforting message that Paul has in these first chapters of Romans that we've been walking through. And uh, although we're taking a break, I want to do a little review, and I think we'll find some context to Jeremiah here in, um, to Romans here in Jeremiah. Um, so although we're taking a, a quick one-week break from it, and we'll be back next week, um, I think this will have value to our Roman study um, that we can carry into next week. But a lot of what we've been talking about the past few weeks is the distinction between Jew and Gentile. And for us here in America in the 21st century, that can seem like a very irrelevant topic. What does that have to do with me? Um, and this is what is very important to understand about Scripture, is that it applies to you, but it does not mold itself to your context. It applies to your context, but you are required to mold yourself to it, to ask God to transform you. So if something seems irrelevant, we don't just throw away that text. We ask, Lord, I don't know what to do with this, but would you bring me to an understanding of this? And so I don't know about you, but that's kind of what I felt a little bit these past few weeks. Like we're talking about Jew and Gentile and there's no favoritism with God. And it just seems like, why do we care? Well, we have to understand that the Messiah, this thing, Christianity, it didn't originate here in America. Have we forgotten that? That we serve a Jewish man. We serve an Israeli Messiah 2,000 years ago. And so in Paul's day, what's happening is that, I mean, all the whole scripture up to the New Testament, up to Paul's day, was all about the Jews. It was all about this one ethnic group of people, the Jews. And, and you could, if you weren't a Jew, you were a Gentile, which is most all of us here. If you weren't a Jew, you could become kind of part of that people group, but you were still considered like an alien or an outsider, and you didn't have certain access and certain privileges, but you could still know God to some degree. But there was this division. And now Jesus comes along, and the veil in the temple is rent, and so we can now have direct communion with God, not through a priest. And that also means that Gentiles are us in here today. We're welcome now to fully partake in what God's people had in intimacy with our creator. There's now no more distinction. And so the Jews who have grown up in this day, but they've also grown up with a history of thousands of years of things being a certain way, is ripped apart at the cross. And so Paul is helping them understand, hey, this is what's happening here, that, that Gentiles are included in this. And even from the beginning, man, a, when the promise was made to Abraham that he would be a blessing to the nations, this is part of that. Where, where even when God called Abraham, he wasn't just, he wasn't just choosing Abraham and, and just forget all the other nations. No, he was going to make Abraham an example to the rest of us. And that we, that he could be a blessing and that he, they could show us, the Jews could be that people that lead us to God, that lead the world to the true creator, the true one. And they miserably failed at that. Miserably failed at that. And so Jesus comes 
and makes it right. And so Paul's helping them understand this. And it would do us well to, to feel that a little bit. As we meditate on Scripture, that's what it's meant to be. It's not meant to just be a kind of a, you read through it, and I got that. Scripture is meant to be chewed on, meditated on, slowly, throughout your entire life. Like, that is the style and, and the purpose in which this is written. And I already forgot what I was going to say next. I get in these flows, and then it just disappears. Uh, but maybe that means I should stop talking and get, uh, get on with this. So where we find um, Jeremiah 17, this is an extremely sad book. Jeremiah was one of the most loathed prophets, and I think he was the most unsuccessful prophet. If we're judging success in terms of how many people repented and came to God under his, you know, prophecy, uh, the number is zero, to, like very minimal to zero. They, they, Jeremiah was not liked at all. And in his day, Israel as a nation in the promised land is coming to an end. That's it. Jeremiah is told to basically declare them guilty. And so Jeremiah gives them warnings again and again, and they just, they continue to resist the Lord. And so in Jeremiah's day, he watches his people destroyed and taken captive into Babylon. It's an extremely sad book because the whole time there's this decision where God says, hey, if you would just obey, and you're like, come on, guys, come on. It's just, just obey. Just do what he said. And we're going to see one of those examples here today. And they just continually resist and say no. This is the people that are the Jews in Romans. This, this is the people group that Paul is, is talking to. Not these specific people because it's a hun- Romans is hundreds of years later. But this is that nation. And so it gives us a little history and context of who these Jews were and, um, and what they came out of. And so in this chapter... So I'm trying to figure out how much do I want to go into the history here. It's helpful because Jeremiah is not talking to necessarily the whole nation of Israel. He's talking to the tribe of Judah. Because at that time, the, you have King Saul, the first king, and then King David, and then Solomon, King David's son. And then Solomon's son who reigns after him, Rehoboam, is arguably one of the dumbest characters in the Bible. Like, it is one of the, like, you are just like, this guy does not have a brain or a clue when you read. And, and so under his reign, the kingdom splits. And you get all the 11 tribes in the north, Israel, who from that point on never have a good righteous king. They are just, their descent is just continual. With Judah, however, the one tribe that's left, the one faithful tribe in the south, they, they have some, like on their way down, they have some kind of like up where they have some good kings and they do righteously, but they still just descend in wickedness and disobedience. And so that's who Jeremiah is writing to, that last remaining tribe. Israel has already been, the northern tribes have already been um, taken captive and dispersed by Assyria that comes in and wipes them out. And now Judah's remaining, and they're barely hanging on with, for their life. So Jeremiah 17, I'm going to finally just read this here, okay? Stay with me. The sin of Judah is inscribed with an iron stylus, with a diamond point. It is engraved on the tablet of their hearts and on the horns of their altars, while their children remember their altars and their asherah poles by the green trees on the high hills. These are references to idolatry. My mountains, God says, in the countryside, I will give up your wealth and all your treasures as plunder because of the sin of your high places in all your borders. You will on your own relinquish your your inheritance that I gave you. I will make you serve your enemies in a land you do not know, for you have set my anger on fire. It will burn forever. So so this is this is kind of the context. And, and we're not going to spend a lot of time in those verses, but the next portion here is what we're going to really dig into. Verse 5. This is what the Lord says, cursed is the person who trusts in mankind. Hear the word of the Lord today, church. He makes human flesh his strength, and his heart turns from the Lord. He will be like a juniper in the Arabah. That's helpful. 
Basically, what that means is he's a bush in a desolate wilderness. He cannot see when good comes, but dwells in parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land where no one lives. The person who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence indeed is the Lord, is blessed. He will be like a tree planted by water. It sends its roots out toward a stream. It doesn't fear when heat comes, and its foliage remains green. It will not worry in a year of drought or cease producing fruit. Hear this. The heart is more deceitful than anything else. Lean into the word today, church. Lean into the word. Do you hear that? The heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. It doesn't actually get better. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, examine the mind. I test the heart to give to each according to his way, according to what his actions deserve. He who makes an, a fortune unjustly, here's another good illustration, is like a partridge that hatches eggs it didn't lay. Basically a bird who takes care of young that aren't its, that, that basically steals the young from another. In the middle of his life, his riches will abandon him, and so in the end he will be a fool. A glorious throne on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. Lord, the hope of Israel, all who abandon you will be put to shame. All who turn away from me will be written in the dirt, for they have abandoned the Lord, the fountain of living water. Heal me, Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved, for you are my praise. Hear how they keep challenging me. Where is the word of the Lord? Let it come. But I have not run away from being your shepherd. I have not longed for the fatal day. You know my words were spoken in your presence. Don't become a terror to me. You are my refuge in the day of disaster. Let my persecutors be put to shame, but don't let me be put to shame. Let them be terrified, but don't let me be terrified. Bring on them the day of disaster. Shatter them with total destruction. This is what, you still with me? I know this is long. Man, stay with me here. This is what the Lord said to me. Go and stand at the people's gate. Okay, this is the gate of Jerusalem. Through which the kings of Judah enter and leave, as well as all, at all the gates of Jerusalem. Announce to them, hear the word of the Lord, kings of Judah, all Judah, and the residents of Jerusalem who enter through these gates. This is what the Lord says. Watch yourselves. Do not pick up a load and bring it through Jerusalem's gates on the Sabbath day. Do not carry a load out of your houses on the Sabbath day or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy just as I commanded your ancestors. They wouldn't listen or pay attention, but became obstinate, not listening or accepting discipline. However, here it is, if you listen to me, this is the Lord's declaration, and do not bring loads through the gates of this city on the Sabbath day, but keep the Sabbath day holy and do no work on it. This is what will happen. Kings and princes will enter through the gates of this city. They will sit on the throne of David. They will ride in chariots and on horses with their officials, the men of Judah and the residents of Jerusalem. This city will be inhabited forever. This is a crazy promise in the midst of these, this portion of the Old Testament where so much judgment has been declared. God just says, look, if you'll just do this, if you'll just keep the Sabbath day holy, things will be right. Then people will come from the cities of Judah and from the area around Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin, from the Judean foothills, from the hill country, and from the Negev, which is like the lower southern region, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, grain offerings and frankincense and thanksgiving sacrifices to the house of the Lord. Things will be as they're designed to be. But if you do not listen to me to keep the Sabbath day holy by not carrying a load while entering the gates of the Jerusalem, on the Sabbath day, I will set fire to its gates and it will consume the citadels of Jerusalem and not be extinguished. Now, the message today is not about how Fresno will burn if you do not keep the Sabbath. So in case you're wondering, that's not where we're going today. But what are, and maybe you could be wondering, what in the world are we going to talk about? Like, what, what is happening here? And so hopefully it'll make some sense and the Holy Spirit will speak to us and use his word today as he always does. But I want to talk today about trusting in the Lord. And that's just the title. Trust in the Lord. And I want to unpack that in this passage. Let's pray. Father, thank you for new mercies today. Thank you that you are the faithful God when we are not. 
Lord, and you are the God who judges, but for your children, the judgment has been laid on Jesus. And now there's only discipline for us that leads us into life. Father, open hearts in here today, God. What power do I have to change anybody? Lord, it's only weakness without you. So Lord, hit us with the reality of your presence today. God, there are sleeping souls in here. There are apathetic hearts. There is blindness. And I don't get to see, I don't get to judge, but you see. Lord, may we encounter the living God today, the God of Jeremiah, the God who saves, the God who heals. Lord, prevent anything the enemy wants to do, any work of the flesh in this place, mine or anybody else's. Prevent us, save us from deception, from our deceitful hearts. Lord, may we hear from you and may it last because it's your work, not ours. Our hope is in Jesus. Amen. Amen. So first, I want to start with the decision of faith. Okay, we're going to look at three things today. And, and first is the decision of faith, that, that you have faith and you have a decision with what you're going to do with that faith. And so our first portion of scripture that we're going to kind of focus in on is, is verses 5 through kind of 13. And, and here, Jeremiah presents the people with an option. He says, hey, there's, two, there's two objects that you can put your faith in. There's two choices you have. And he's going to present them and their consequences. And he's just going to lay it out there. And the choice should be obvious when we look at this. He says, let's first look at the first object of our faith. To trust in mankind. To trust in mankind. And, and be, be aware, this includes you. This is the way of the world. This is other humans. When you put your hope in humanity, when you put your hope in yourself, this is the result. And let's not assume this is just someone else outside, you know, these walls today. Do you desire to grow in your faith? Okay, I'm, I don't know why I'm standing up here. <laughs> Come on, church. Do you desire to grow? I hope so. Then take the stand before God's word today. Humble yourself and let it examine you thoroughly. The, the first thing we see is that the, that man who trusts in mankind is cursed. He has a couple parallels here. He's talking about a bush and a tree. He's talking about cursing and blessing. And the person who trusts in mankind, who trusts in themselves and their deceitful heart, is cursed. They make human flesh their strength. And the result is their heart turns from the Lord. When you do this, when your faith is in yourself and your abilities and your wisdom and your giftings or whatever, or, or you're hoping in this to work out in these people, you are like a bush in the wilderness, in a desolate wilderness. You're just out there. You're like a boat on a raging sea with no anchor. Waves are coming over and you're just trying to stay afloat, but you have no idea where you are. Or where you're going. You're just out there. This is what it means to trust in mankind. To trust in ourselves. And I would maybe extend this. Maybe this is interpretation. So take it with a grain of salt. But to include like the world and the system of it. That is constructed kind of by mankind. You are blind, needy, and lonely. If all you have are failing and broken humans. All you have are failing and broken humans. You're just out there. There's no anchor. You're just trying to stay afloat. And what's worse is verse 9. <laughs> if that's not bad enough, if, if it's not just vanity to trust in ourselves and the weakness of human flesh, we have a heart that is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. It's desperately sick, some translations say. This is Romans 1 through 3, guys. This is Paul breaking down his audience, saying, you guys have nothing but sin. There's nothing good in us. Now, this is supposed to cut. This is supposed to cut. This is not, this is not designed to make you hate yourself, but to accept your state 
and humble yourself before God Almighty. Our heart is deceitful. And so some of us, we're out there on the waves and we're, we've figured out, man, maybe we have enough talent. Maybe, talent. maybe you learned how to work hard enough and you, you make it happen and you're able to kind of surf the waves and you're navigating the waves and you're doing all right for yourself and things are going okay and, and, and God has his place, but your trust is really in yourselves and you are probably, you are probably worse off than the others that are capsizing and sinking around you. Because they, those who are failing to get it together and make it through this life, they're, they're better off as they sink because they're ready for rescue. They're ready for a savior. But you, why do you need a savior? You're doing okay. But you still have no anchor. You still have no idea who you are, where you are, or where you're going. But it doesn't matter because you're going, right? You're making it. You're doing it. I don't want to stop and think and question if, if I should be, but, but I'm, I'm just going to keep going. I'm just going to just not think about that, not consider that. Give me a little encouraging word. Tell me, you know, that, that God's for me and loves me and, and I'll be on my way. The heart is deceitful above all else. And that's going to lead us to the second option because in that state, it's a pretty hopeless picture, isn't it? And it's supposed to be. Jeremiah is not subtle here. Let's look at verse 7. The person who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence indeed is the Lord, is blessed. There's favor. There, there's, there is fulfillment. There's peace. There's rest. There's this, you are blessed. It's, it's that simple. You trust in man. You trust in yourself. You trust in the world around you. You're cursed. You're living under a curse. You trust in the Lord, you're blessed. Whose confidence indeed is the Lord. He will be like a tree planted by water. How's this for a, a, a contrast? You have a bush in a desolate wilderness. And then you have a tree planted by water, but not just any water. Look what Jeremiah says at the end of verse 13. All who turn away from me will be written in the dirt, for they have abandoned the Lord. The what? The Look at your Bibles. The end of verse 13, what does it say? Who have they abandoned? The fountain of living water. When you trust in the Lord, you're a tree planted by the fountain of living water. Get this, guys. When heat comes, its foliage remains green. I am doing everything I can to keep my yard green right now. Like desperately trying. Desperately. And it's... I don't know if it's working. This is a dream for me, actually. Like, its foliage remains green. I was just, man, what blessing. It will not worry in a year of drought. In a year of drought where there's no water available. It doesn't worry. It doesn't fear. It doesn't cease producing fruit. You know what that sounds like, church? That sounds too good to be true. That sounds idealistic. That sounds pie in the sky, great, I'll never reach it. It sounds, oh yeah, never, like who doesn't want that? Like who would look at these two options and say, I think trusting in man is uh, trusting in myself, I think I'll keep doing that. You are a fool. I declare with confidence we all want this, don't we? What does that practically look like, church? To trust in the Lord. And this is what we're going to talk about next. But, but in New Testament terms, this life, this is Paul. We just finished Philippians earlier this year. And this is what he says. He's like, I know how to make do with a little when there's drought. I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. I am just laughing at myself in my head right now. <laughs> I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. It looks like contentment regardless of what's going on around you because 
my agendas, they're just so secondary. My plans, they're just held so loosely because I'm trusting the Lord. I'm, I'm walking with Him. Philippians 4.19, my God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. It sends its roots out toward the stream, that tree planted by the water. This is the Christian life, church. This is the Spirit of God within you. This is the life you are called to. This is the life grace demands of you. Now, grace demands of you only because it empowers you to do it. Only because grace is the power to live this way. To trust in the Lord. To put your hope in Him. 2 Corinthians 9.8 And God is able to make every grace overflow to you. So that in every way, always having everything you need. Isn't this just superfluous language he's using here? You may excel in every good work. This is that life. This is the tree planted by water. 2 Peter 1.3, His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. That's what it looks like, church. And I am in such a tension up here because I am just like, Lord. Man, I was talking to, um, is Joyce in nursery today? Yeah. I was talking to Donnie, her brother, yesterday. And man, we were just enjoying some rich fellowship. And Donnie, you're probably watching. Um, I really did enjoy that. I'm not just saying that. It was great. And, and we were talking about this struggle of just we look at Scripture, we look at the life we're supposed to be living, and then we get to Monday. And it's like, what am I doing? Do I even believe this? Do I even believe this? And when you see that, and hopefully you see that in yourself to some degree, as, as much as that degree is happening, if it's not, and you're finding yourself following the Spirit, praise the Lord. That's what you're supposed to be doing. You're living the normal life. That's the normal life, brothers and sisters. This is the normal life for Christians. Let's not settle for less than this, okay? The solution when we see that is to cast ourselves on the Lord and put our trust in Him. I definitely ain't doing a good job. I need the Lord here. I need the Lord. Let's move on now. So we see the decision of faith, okay? We have these options. Now let's see what I want to say is a little demonstration of faith that, that we get to see in Jeremiah here. And next is the prayer of faith. Jeremiah is going to cry out to the Lord. And this is what he says in verse 14. Are you with me in 14? Here we go. Heal me, Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved, for you are my praise. Jeremiah doesn't need, this, need to say this for anyone else. Who is he talking to here? Is he talking to the Israelites? Read it. Who is he talking to? The Lord. He's talking to the Lord. Come on, talk to me, and it will help you stay awake. Because we're going to be here for a while. He says, heal me, Lord. What is that? That's faith. He's going to the Lord. You say, well, that's simple. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Heal me, Lord. How many times I forget to just like, why? Why am I not talking to God about this? Why am I not giving this to the Lord? Why haven't I brought this before him? It's been weeks. It's been days. What am I doing? It's so obvious and simple. Heal me, Lord, and I'll be healed. Save me, and I'll be saved. God, you do it. It might be these, these, these congregation mics might be hot. I don't know. Um, or maybe it's too loud. And why, why does he need healing here? I was asking myself this. I was studying. Why healing? Well, I wonder if it's because, verse 9, the heart that is incurable. Jeremiah knows he has that heart that heart is in Jeremiah. And so he says, Lord, if you heal me, if you save me, it's done. If you do it, it's done. You are my praise. You're it for me, Lord. Like you are it. And we're going to see that same idea communicated later here in this, in this prayer. You're it. You're my exaltation, my rejoicing, my joy. It is you, God. You are my praise. Because I'll tell you what, when you read Jeremiah, he ain't getting praise from no one else. There's no one coming around giving Jeremiah a pat on the back. 
They're giving him a shove to the ground. Yeah, in a hole, in a muddy pit, they throw him down there. They put him in stocks. He's beaten, threatened. This is just his life. This is just his life. This is him being faithful to the Lord. And he says, God, you are my praise. <sighs> to put your trust in the Lord, church. Who, who do you need to speak well of you? Whose praise are you looking for? Whose approval are you desiring? Come on. Think. This is for you. This is the word of God to you. You are my praise, Lord. You. To trust in the Lord. That, that's it right there. God, you are my praise. Hear how they keep challenging me. So he says, okay, God. And this, this prayer is so similar to many other prayers. This is not an isolated prayer in the Bible. This is so similar to many of the Psalms and many of the things that David cries out. And Jeremiah is saying, Lord, you hear what these people are saying to me. And what they're saying is actually terrifying. And I didn't really understand this at first, but when I referenced Matthew, com Matthew Henry's commentary, I think it gave me some clarity here. They're saying, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come. This is absolute defiance. This is me saying, I choose judgment. They are literally riding themselves off to the judgment of God. And Jeremiah is like, do you hear this? Do you hear what they're saying? How they keep challenging me. Could you imagine the people you love, the nation you love? You, you, you call them to repentance. You call them to life, to salvation, to trust in the Lord. And they just throw this in your face. The heartbrokenness of this. But I have not run away from being your shepherd, he says. I have not longed for the fatal day. Jeremiah's like, God, I ain't looking forward to this. I'm not looking forward to what you're, this judgment that you're having me proclaim over this people. I'm not looking forward to it, but I haven't run away. You know my words were spoken in your presence. God, you know what I'm saying. These are your words, aren't they? Don't become a terror to me. This maybe doesn't sound like our our prayers are the ideal prayer of faith, does it? Sounds like a struggle. Sounds like a man wrestling with the Lord. Because life sucks. And it's hard. But what is he doing, church? Don't, don't write this off or take it for granted. He is going to the Lord. Because What's going to happen in Jeremiah's day is terror. It is horrible what you read in this book. The judgment that happens. I was about to describe it, but I'm just going to move on. Go read Jeremiah. That's a teaser. You are my refuge in the day of disaster. These are your two options. Either God will be a terror to you because you are his enemy, or he will be your refuge. That is how intense this, this, this thing is that we're doing called Christianity. So Jeremiah's like, Lord, if, if I don't have you, what do I have? You are my refuge. Do not be a terror to me. You are my refuge. He's casting himself on the Lord again. Man, man, I, I just, I'm relating to this as I'm reading of how many times I'm just like, God, if I ain't got this right, what do I have? Like, those moments where I've lost confidence, where I'm questioning, where I have doubts. God, you better be faithful. You, you better be with me. Don't be a terror to me. You are my refuge. Let my persecutors be put to shame, but don't let me be put to shame. Let them be terrified, but don't let me be terrified. Bring on them the day of disaster. Shatter them with total destruction. This is my prayer every day. What he's saying is, God, they're asking for it. You are the God of vengeance. Do it. Let it be done. 
Let it be done. They'd have handed themselves over. Let it be done. My hope is in you. Let them be ashamed. Basically, like David says, vindicate me, Lord. Vindicate me. Bring justice. Expose the truth here. Expose what's right here. Bring righteousness. Bring justice, Lord. The prayer of faith. And for a lot of us, I feel like the norm of our prayer lives, it's, you know, it's in the midst of life, right? Which there's beauty and pureness and communion with God in that. When we're driving or we're at work or we're at home and we're just kind of doing something, we're talking to the Lord, that is great. And I'm not downplaying that at all. But church, I want to encourage you. And I don't know if this is directly from the text, so I don't want to just claim that what I'm saying is the word of God. I could probably find it in other texts, if not this one. But that I want to encourage you to not limit your prayer life to just that kind of form of praying. That you would take moments where you stop, where you stop everything and you commune with the Lord for a sec. You wait before the Lord for a minute. And I'm not declaring this as like a law, but like this is not optional either. It's not optional. It doesn't mean, you know, every day you're spending an hour in prayer and you have this religious rule that you fall. No, it, it's not that. It's this weird in-between that I don't know how to describe. It's not legalism. It's just necessary. It's just knowing God. Spend time communing with Him, pouring out your heart before Him. And I'm just saying, sometimes that's hard to do when there's others around and I'm in the middle of a task. Maybe y'all are better at that. But I really want to encourage you, church, to, to make prayer a serious matter of priority. What needs to be cut? What needs to be cut? Who is your God that you're serving? And again, please don't hear this as some condemnation of you're not doing good enough, you need to do better. No, but I, I don't want to hesitate to call you up higher, to challenge you, to know the Lord deeper. To know the Lord in a way that says, man, I will not let him go. I must understand him. I must know him. I must find strength for today. I must find faith for today. Because I cannot please him in my flesh. I cannot please him. I cannot go to work and be righteous and, and, and display the behavior of Christ and be Jesus to these people on my own. You cannot. You cannot do what God has called you to without his Holy Spirit and you walking in the Holy Spirit. That is why we get on our knees. And it's been a while since I've like literally got on my knees. But that posture, and maybe it means you're going physically on your knees. Okay, I've spent enough time here. The decision of faith, I am not going to look at the time. The prayer of faith. Now let's look at the life of faith, okay? And this is where we get this weird passage on the Sabbath and what in the world does it have to do with anything, okay? What does it have to do with trusting in the Lord? The Sabbath was the action of faith. Hold on to that. How many of you are familiar with what the Sabbath is? How many of you, come on, talk to me. You have a confident idea of this is, I know what the Sabbath is. Okay, okay. The Sabbath and, and we'll, we'll look at it a little bit. I don't even know if I need to explain it. We'll just look at it here in, in the Word. And I don't, if you want to go to Exodus 16, you can, but I'm, just, I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to describe what happens in Exodus 16. Because this is where we get the, the first mention of the Sabbath. And, and maybe I need to tie it together from what's in Jeremiah here first. So let's go to Jeremiah 17, verse 20. Okay, you there? So here's the Word of the Lord again. It's coming. This is what he says. Announce to them, hear the word of the Lord, kings of Judah, all Judah, and all the residents of Jerusalem who enter through these gates. This is what the Lord says. Watch yourselves. Pay attention. And it just seems so built up, right? And then this is what the word of the Lord is. Do not pick up a load and bring it through Jerusalem's gates on the Sabbath day. Doesn't that just seem like so anticlimactic? Like, what? Don't bring a load out of your houses. Do not carry a load out of your houses on the Sabbath day or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy just as I commanded your ancestors. What does this have to do with anything? This seems just kind of randomly put here. 
But man, there is a richness here. There is a beauty here. And so in Exodus 16 is the first time we see this idea of Sabbath. And this is actually also, we're going to read, the fourth of the Ten Commandments. The Big Ten, right? Which most everyone knows about. At least, I don't know anymore if I can even say that. But the Ten Commandments, when people think Christianity, that, you know, God, that's one of the things they probably think about, right? The Sabbath is number four. This was, this was the way of life for the Jews that they were called to. And one, it, this is an interesting fact, which I don't have time to say, but I'm going to do it anyway. The reason Israel was in exile for 70 years, this is so fascinating, is because they were supposed to have a Sabbath year every seven years. But they disobeyed for, I don't know what that would be. However many years it would take to, to make 70 Sabbath years. So 70 times 7, what is that? 100, 490 years? So 490 years they didn't obey that. And so God says, well, the land's going to have a good Sabbath now. So God takes all those stacked up years and says, 70 years in exile so the land can rest. And I'll, I'll give the land rest because you guys wouldn't. This idea of Sabbath is even ingrained in the exile. So in Exodus 16, the first mention of Sabbath, Israel's coming out of Egypt, right? Coming out of slavery, and they're groaning. They're complaining again. They're in the wilderness. And they're like, Moses, why did you bring us out here? There's no food. You brought us out here to die. We would have been way better off if we just stayed in Egypt. We had everything we needed. And so God tells Moses, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to rain food from heaven. What's it called? Manna. I'm going to rain food. Man, wouldn't that be nice? And weird. And weird. Go out on my lawn. Be like, all right, trying to gather food for today. And he's setting up a pattern here. He's like, six days, you're going to work. You're going to send the Israelites out, and they're going to go get what they need, but only for that day. Only for that day. Do not save up for the next day. Think about this. What do you know of Scripture? What does this sound like, right? Get enough food for that day. And don't gather extra. Give us this day, our daily bread. This same pattern. It's dependence on the Lord. If that food don't fall tomorrow, we're going hungry, aren't we? That's dependence. God better be real. God better keep his promise. That's what you're supposed to live in. We're supposed to live in that tension of faith that says, are you going to choose to believe God or are you going to try to, are you going to disobey and try to store up extra for yourself? Now, we haven't even necessarily gotten to the Sabbath yet, but do you already see trust here, faith here, the life of faith? They don't, they don't obey. They gather more than they need and it grows worms and rots overnight. But then here's what happens. Here's where the Sabbath comes into play. Day seven, which would be a Saturday. On the sixth day, on Friday, he says, actually, you're going to gather everything you need for today and tomorrow. So you're going to do extra work. You're going to do double the work that day. You're going to get what you need. And this is what it says in Exodus 16, 23. He told them, this is what the Lord said. Tomorrow is a day of complete rest. A holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil and set aside everything left over to be kept until morning. This is God's design. This is God's system says, okay, I'm going to sustain the food on the sixth day for you because I want you resting. I want you to stop. And so, and he says, man is not going to fall on Sunday or, or on Saturday, on the Sabbath. It's not going to fall. It's not going to be available. So if you don't obey, you're going to be hungry. Dependence, obedience, trusting the Lord. This is the pattern that God set up. This is the Sabbath. It is the pattern of trusting the Lord as my provider. And so they don't obey again. They go out and there's no manna. God's like, Moses, I told them, what, what, what are they doing? Let's look at the fourth commandment here, okay? Exodus 20. This is four chapters later where God actually now makes the covenant. So the Sabbath is in play even before the covenant, the law, it's there. It's a pattern that God has given them. Remember the Sabbath day. This is the fourth commandment. 
to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work, you, your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock or the resident alien who is within your city gates. That would have been the Gentile. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. So even at creation, God is setting up a pattern. Now think about that. No work. Just stop. Leave the bricks on the ground. Get them on Monday or Sunday. Get them on the, you, you can take care of that load later. What do you need to do? God has told you to rest. Stop. I don't really like that. I'm not really comfortable with that. I kind of want to control when I do what. Now why? Why does God give them the Sabbath? Well, in one reason, I think it's his love and his mercy for his creation. God is not demanding you work yourself to death. God is not demanding that you work yourself to death. Are you doing that? Some of you are on opposite sides of this. Some of you are working way too much and you're just drowning out all your problems in your work. Some of you maybe aren't working enough. This is where I don't get to control things. This is where the Spirit of God, you've got to be open to Him and He's got to show you where you're at. He is commanding you to live within His design. And that design is dependence upon Him. This is what it comes down to. It is not up to you to survive or make everything happen. Think about that. That's how we live. I gotta make it happen. I gotta, I gotta take care of this. I gotta provide for my family. I gotta, this contradicts the natural, the seemingly natural way we live, the intuitive way that our flesh thinks. It is not up to you to survive or make everything happen. But do you realize that is the idea that is ingrained in like the American spirit itself? individualism, independence, which we're celebrating tomorrow and praise the Lord because that independence, man, we got to be a free nation and have religious liberty and, and, and be independent from tyranny. That's, that's a gift. That's a blessing. This nation is a blessing. Amen? But when it comes to our relationship with God, being the master of your own destiny, individualism, independence, do you realize that's the enemy of this? That's the enemy of the Sabbath? That's the enemy of God's design? You're the one who's got to make it happen. You're making moves. You're doing it. Stop. The Sabbath says, I live in God's world under His authority and I trust Him. It is obedience. And that is key because the flesh and fleshly people will say, that way of thinking will just lead me to be lazy and passive. Really? Really? Under this old covenant, God told them, in six days, do your work. This way of living would probably require more discipline. It takes discipline to rest. Under the covenant, you better get everything done in six days, right? Now, thank God, thank God, we do not live under this covenant. Some of you have been like, holding your breath. Like, come on, save me here. Throw me a line. We are not under this old covenant, we're under a new covenant in which Jesus has become our Sabbath. He is our rest. But what does that mean, right? Because what that can become so easily is a justification for just, oh, well, Jesus is my rest. We just throw that out there. I don't need rest. I'll just do what I want. I got to make this happen. I got to do these plans. I, I don't want to miss out on this. So I got to do, come on, I'm speaking to someone today. I don't want to miss out on this. I got to make sure this happens. I got to keep this from happening. I got to make sure these people aren't mad with me. I got to, all this stuff. Oh, Jesus is my rest so I can do whatever I think is right. Just like the book of Judges, the actually saddest book of the Bible after Jeremiah. The key line in the book of Judges. And in those days, there was no king. 
and every man did what was right in his own eyes. You are a fool. That is a foolish way to live. That is trust in mankind. So we still have a, a, a pattern. It's not this religious law that, okay, you need to make sure, guys, yesterday I hope you all didn't do any work. You're in trouble. Hope you didn't, weren't picking up any loads yesterday. Right? No, that's not, that's not how it works. But it's this idea of dependence that Jesus is my rest and my Sabbath. So I'm required to know him. I'm required to follow his spirit. I'm required to listen. I'm required to seek him, to know when I need to rest and when I need to work. And, and we don't need to overcomplicate this. It's not like we get up every morning and wait for a magical voice to tell us what to do. Should I go to work today? Or Netflix? No. No, no, no. God has called you to work. It's that, that's clear. Before we fell, before sin, God put Adam in the garden to work. It is God's will that we work. Simple. So what's God's will for you? Probably to work. Probably to work. Most of you have a job or something, some work that God has given you to do. So you don't have to question and wonder, I don't know what to do. Should I rest? The Holy Spirit's not speaking to me. No. Do the work that's before you. Praise the Lord for it. But the way in which you go about that work is not in the flesh, brothers and sisters. It's in the spirit. It's in submission. It's in prayer. It's in a spirit of communion with God saying, God, I believe you've called me to this. So lead me. Lead me when I need, when it's time to put this down, when it's time to pick it up, lead me. And there will be times where God says, it is time to rest now. And you don't want to. You don't want to because something's going to fall apart. Something's going to burn in the oven. Something, you know, is going to be out of control. You're going to have to apologize because you didn't manage your time well. Oh, oh, horrible things will happen. God, don't you see? And he says, rest. He says, rest. Do you realize that's what it means to trust the Lord? Because in those moments where I'm like, okay, now's the time to rest, but I'm anxious and I want to do something. I don't want to be still. What I realize there is that there's some lingering trust that's not in God. And anxiety and mental issues and, and depression, I don't want to discount those. I've definitely had my share of experience with those things. But what I've also found is that most of that, I'm not a victim to. Most of that is because I am not trusting the Lord. I am just, it's, it, sorry. It's that simple. And when you lay your life bare before the Lord and allow him to examine what's going on, why am I anxious, why am I fearful, why, oh, I'm afraid to miss out on that. Oh, I want these people's approval. Oh, I want to be this type of person. Oh, I want this financial, you know, stability. I, 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 so I need to do this. I need to do that. I need, what do you need? You're a boat out on the sea, no anchor, doing everything you can, enjoying the common grace of the Lord and totally ignorant to, to his presence, totally ignorant to his desire in that moment. Church, we are, we are required is, a, is an interesting word. We are called to walk very closely with the Lord. And so that means sometimes you're going to blow it. Sometimes you're going to put your trust in man. Sometimes you're going to put your trust in yourself. Sometimes you're going to put your trust in the wrong things. And you're going to believe in your own agenda. And you're going to, you're going to demand your own way. And look, look what verse 23 says. They, he's talking about, I gave this to your ancestors. This is hundreds, thousands of years later, maybe. Ah, thousands might be an exaggeration. They wouldn't listen or pay attention. They became obstinate, not listening, or accepting discipline. So when you find yourself having blown it, 
Accept the discipline of the Lord. Humble yourself. It's not the end of the world to humble yourself and ask forgiveness from someone. And first the Lord. We got to realize how normal that is for us. Humbling ourselves, that's the everyday experience. Get used to it. Get used to humiliation, brothers and sisters. Get used to that garbage feeling when your pride is frying in oil and you're like humbling yourself before someone that you despise and you've got to apologize because you were wrong and yes, they were about 70% more wrong, but I sinned and God's calling me to make it right. I'm going to trust in him and feel like slime for a few minutes and then I'll find his grace, I'll find his hope and he is my praise. Get used to humbling yourself. That's what it means to trust the Lord, church. Who is your trust in today? You don't get to control tomorrow. But if tomorrow comes, who will your trust be in then? I hope this has been helpful. Father, God, what do I say? What can I pray? You know us. You know what we need. You know the deception in our hearts. You know those who are deceived. You know those who are living in sin. Lord, comfort hearts in here that are feeling a guilt and a shame and a weightiness that is not from you. It is not leading them to the gospel. It is not leading them to Jesus, the one who has saved us. The one who we come again and again and cast ourselves on and fall into and put our trust in. Lord, comfort them. Bring them out of that mourning. But God, for those who do not know repentance, those who are continuing in their, uh, just not their, their fear of you, the their fear of you that doesn't cause them to trust you, but causes them to trust in themselves, rebuke them. Discipline them so that they know life. Bring a humiliation, bring a humbling, bring a clarity in the mind that they would know repentance and that they would experience a healthy grief, a healthy mourning over their sin, realizing that their sin has pinned our Savior to the cross, and that is not okay. There's nothing okay about sin. There's nothing okay about sin, about our failure. It is egregious in the sight of God. It is worthy of His wrath, but the cross... But Jesus paid the price willingly. So God, I'm going to feel the weight of my sin, but then I'm going to turn to the Savior with joy, unspeakable and full of glory, in total brokenness and humiliation. I'm going to find rest, and I'm going to find joy in life because I trust in Jesus, and it's sweet. As the keys continue to play, keep your heads bowed real quick. Man, we, we haven't done this and we don't need to do this, but I'm just, I'm just going to extend it. There does, you, you don't feel like you need to do this. But if you want to come up here and get on your knees and, and, and just cast your heart before the Lord, you're not doing it for the praise of those around you, I just think that we haven't done an altar call in like years. And I think there's some value in it. If you don't know Jesus... If you've not put your trust in God and, and you are just, you're like, yep, I'm the bush in the wilderness, blind, needy, and lonely. I am the boat on the raging sea with no anchor. That's me. You describe me. Then would you come give your life to the Lord? You don't need me. After the service, I'll be in the resource table at the back and I'd love to talk to you if you'd like. But gee, Jesus is here for you. You don't need me to help you get saved, to help you come to the Lord. Come give your life to Him. If He's working in your heart, you know what you need to do. Or right there in your seat. He is for you. And He's saying, receive my discipline. Repent of your sin. Be saved. Put your trust in Jesus. Let's sit in that for a few seconds as the music plays.